0: Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 33 being recorded on Wednesday, June twenty-second, two 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. How are you? Hey, I am terrific. Happy first week of summer. Thanks. Do you guys even have summer in Chicago? (laughs) We do. It's when the temperature equalizes between our oven and our living space.
1: Oh, interesting. It lasts like two weeks or something.
0: Yeah, we go straight from the winter to like the balmy 90s. Um, although as I look out my window right now, we're having the mother of all storms with lightning and thunder and uh, voluminous rain. Okay.
1: So if we hear some loud bangs, it's not uh, your wife banging the pots or anything. It's a thunderstorm. Exact.
0: As far as any of the listeners know, exactly. You have any big plans for a summer vacation?
1: No. Uh, two of my kids are in summer school, which has kind of locked us down for summer. So we're just trying to get little trips to the beach here and there occasionally. So nothing major.
0: Nice. Well, Scott, I thought that we would take a break tonight from our news and interviews and go for our third deep dive show. So as a reminder for listeners, uh, we've done a couple deep dives. Our first one was on Amazon and we've done one on ARVR. And so tonight we're going to do our third deep dive on the on demand economy, also known as ODE. Scott, you've been involved in an ODE company recently. Do you want to tell us about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, uh, I started channel advisor 2001. Um, we went public 2013 and then about a year ago I moved from CEO to executive chairman, uh, and that gave me some time for podcasting. So I've been spending a lot of time on that as you're well aware. Um, but then also I had, um, I'd invested in some car washes in 2003, 2005, and we decided in 2014 to kind of test on demand car wash and detailing. And the company is called get spiffy and it's only available here in Raleigh, Charlotte, and then uh, an exclusive for our listeners will be launching in Atlanta at some point here in the very near future. So, um, so I've been really kind of digging into this space. It's kind of new to me and uh, more of a consumer kind of play whereas channel is more B2B. So it's I find it pretty interesting. It it's kind of, you know, a lot of there's a lot of commonalities between what we deal with in the retail world and e-commerce uh, and what's going on in the on-demand economy. So excited to spend some time sharing some of the stuff that I've seen and hearing what you think about it as well.
0: Nice. I'm really excited to dive into it with you. I do want to double-check one thing. I'm trying to think of the timing. Would you have invested in car washes before or after Walter White on Breaking Bad? I think you might have beaten them.
1: I think it was before, and uh, this comes up a lot when you have car washes. It is not a way to funnel cash for my crystal meth business, so um, I I funnel that through another business that I have.
0: And that will be a future deep dive, um, so I don't want to get into that so much tonight. Um, but for listeners that might not be familiar with on-demand economy, what is an ODE, Scott? That's a good question. And there's um what's interesting about
1: the on-demand economy is you know coming from the e-commerce world, we have um so, so there's there's a lot of coverage of e-commerce. So you have the foresters, the razorfishes, the Deloits, um, you have eMarketer, uh, you have Shock.org, which is, which is part of NRF as you know, which is a industry association that helps kind of put a lot of meat on the bones of what the industry's up to. and the on-demand economy is so new there isn't really a, a, an authoritative body out there to help define what it is. so uh, you know I've, I've had conversations with people that say to be on demand, you have to be you know using the GPS of the phone. And so their definition really kind of skews heavily towards essentially Uber and Lyft. Um, other people say, well, if something doesn't happen in an hour, it's not on demand. So, uh, it, uh, I tend to prefer a broader definition. So here's the one I like. It's, uh, the on demand economy is, is the economic activity created by businesses that fulfill consumer demand through immediate access to and convenient provisioning of goods and services, um, uh, most commonly through a mobile app. Um, now, um, you know, this brings up the debate a lot of people kind of say well if you take phone calls are you a on-demand economy if you don't have an app are you on demand if you have you don't have an app um, but you have a responsive website is that still on demand and I, I tend to be you know personally I, I think it's you know, a, a broad definition kind of works best have you spent any time thinking about it
0: I have. In my mind, I think the two flagship examples that everyone thinks about when you say ODE are Uber and Airbnb. Mm -hmm. And if you work in a digital agency, almost every presentation starts with the don't get Ubered or the case study about the hotel industry versus Airbnb. And so those are these huge examples of digital disruption that frankly get overused over and over again in our space.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and the Airbnb is a good one because you know I I would consider it part of the on-demand economy, but purists probably wouldn't because. I would imagine a fair amount of their bookings don't come through the app. I, I prefer the desktop experience for Airbnb personally because you know I really want to see where I'm going to be staying. In <laughs> um, the app, you know the mobile app is doesn't give you as much visibility into that, um, and it, you know it's not immediate. It's not like something's going to happen in the next five minutes or something like that. So, um, but it is a marketplace model, and and um, you know it's a perfect example of how the marketplace model can really work to have a network effect. So. Uh, it, it's interesting, kind of fun to debate it. Um, probably not worth a ton of our time tonight, but would you know if, inter- if listeners are interested in talking about it further, we can go out to Facebook or Twitter or wherever they want to talk
0: about it. Yeah, and I imagine that there's some debate about some of the legacy businesses that have been around a long time that m- kind of might meet that definition. Like, wasn't Pizza Hut one of the first businesses to take an e-commerce order? So, could they have been the original ODE? Yeah, you know, I,
1: I think. Um, I would include a lot of the pizza delivery. If you're going to have, you know, some of these food delivery companies in there, you might as well have some of the pizza delivery companies in there too. So, so again, I think. Um I tend to have a broad definition and pretty much most things are in there. Uh, Another one is where do you put things like Amazon prime? Now Um, there was a Pew research study and they included that as one of the on demand economy surveys. So some purists said, that's not, that's crazy. That's, you know, that's not an on demand economy service. And I I think it is, you know, whenever I'm using an app and I'm getting something in an hour or two, um, you know, pretty quickly, it ends up being a good, not a service. Uh, I think that that's, that's still the on demand economy.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me, and I have sort of had my first takeaway from this deep dive already, which is that there probably is an opportunity for some research firms and maybe even uh, an industry trade organization in this space, because as we're going to talk about in a bit, it's a pretty large space already. Yeah, I definitely
1: think that is an opportunity, and I'm sure someone. There's there's not even really a trade show. There is um, this one vendor, which is a great vendor called Button, um, and they're think of them kind of as the affiliate marketing uh, company for the on-demand economy. So they have technology that allows you to link your apps, so you could say. Hey, uh, you've probably seen in, in maps where it, you know, it has Uber integration. So they, they kind of work in that kind of a way that that's not their specific implementation, but they've kind of productized that. So very much like an affiliate linkage kind of thing, but in the on-demand economy world, um, and they have a fair amount of information out at the on-demand org. Um, don't forget the, the, and, um, you know, And and it looks like they had a trade show at some point, but a lot of that stuff is going on two years old and it's not really well updated because I think it's just like one vendor that kind of saw the gap and tried to fill it, which is great. But, um, you know, it's obviously not as all inclusive as an industry organization would be where you can have multiple players, multiple vendors and all that kind of thing. Interesting. So, so, to kind of um, the way I help set the stage for a lot of people that have questions about this is to really think at a super high level what are the consumer behaviors that are, are causing this pretty rapid adoption of this new way of doing things? Um, and um, a lot of these will sound familiar to you and to listeners. So, I think we can go through them pretty quickly to get to the meat and potatoes of the on demand economy, but it is important to kind of set the table. Um, so, the first one is mobile. And you and I have talked, um, we probably dedicate 10 minutes, a podcast. um, So that's a lot of coverage to mobile. Um, You know, the, the stats I always cite that kind of, are out there is obviously we know that mobile traffic is higher than desktop now um the average consumer has something like 120 apps but they only use about eight of them uh it has dramatically increased the amount of time we're online and it puts a supercomputer with a gps and your identity in many cases um through payment systems right in your hand which you know we didn't have before that's the real innovation that kind of spurred companies like Uber to kind of come out with this new way of doing things that, that has really caused a lot of a uh, lot more companies to think about that as an opportunity. Have you seen any interesting mobile stats that kind of um, enforce that? Uh,
0: well, so some of my personal favorites are great to remember but somewhat alarming, there are more mobile phones in the world than there are toothbrushes.
1: Mm, yeah, that's... It's not not good news for well I guess it is good news for the dentist.
0: Yep, and then I believe there are 10 mobile phone activations for every baby born in the world right now. So we're you know growing at 10 times the the rate of the population. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, and the big thing I always like to enforce in people is you cannot uh, overestimate the impact that mobile has had on virtually every industry it's touched. So we talk a lot in retail about digital disruption. And the point I like to make is that digital had a had somewhat of a disruptive effect on retail, but what we're really feeling and what what is overwhelmingly the driver of disruption in retail is mobile. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And we should save it for a deep dive, but you and, and a future deep dive, but you and I always disagree on the, you know, the root cause of the conversion rate Delta, but, um, yep. you know, a lot of these on-demand services have pretty good conversion rates because they're very straight. They were kind of born in a mobile world. They're mobile first kind of companies. Um, so they, they have much, they, they haven't tried to kind of drag a desktop metaphor with them, uh, you know, where you kind of search for something and all that. So it's, it's a very different metaphor that I think is actually, you know, users have really responded to.
0: Yeah, and I know the listeners enjoy it when we don't agree because I we get tons of feedback that they really like hearing the correct answer and then also your opinion. <laughs>
1: I had a feeling you were going to frame it that way. Thanks. <laughs> uh, just I'm just here to be your uh, to give you a little devil's advocacy. the um, The second big kind of consumer trend is, and and these are kind of married together uh, with mobile is social. So, um, and what social does is it creates a situation where not only do people have these mobile devices, but they're using them constantly all day. Um, so, so you know, you, you've seen the stats, you know, Facebook's well north of a billion daily active users, so social networks. And if you look at the those eight active apps that, that consumers do spend the bulk of their time on, something like six of the eight tend to be social networks. So, so they're, they're definitely driving the kind of usage. Um, so people are kind of always looking at their phone and that makes it just easier to kind of swipe and then have a a page for more services that you want to take use of. Um, It's also, it's interesting with, with the millennial generation, um, you know, they really don't like like to make phone calls. So um, I'll give you an anecdote at ChannelVisor. We have this entry level position called sales development rep or SDR and it's kind of effectively telesales. Um, You know, we get all these leads and you have to call them and kind of sort through them and stuff. Uh, And we had to add a fair amount of training for, for new college grads to really like, you know, teach them how to make phone calls, not the logistics of pressing the buttons, but you know how to carry a conversation verbally and that kind of thing across the phone. Because, and I see this with my kids, they calling on the phone is their, 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 you know, last resort, I mean, it has to be pretty painful for them to call on the phone. So, um, so so that that's another kind of aspect of this is it's just easier. People would much more prefer the experience of requesting through a digital device than calling on the phone, which, you know, our generation and the generation older, um, what's interesting at Spiffy is we offer a wide range of ways for people to get in touch with us and it tends to vary by generation. So the people that call us tend to be, Um, kind of mid-40s and up, and they're kind of saying, I just wanted to talk to human and make sure you're there, whereas the millennials are like, oh, of course someone's behind this button and I'm happy to press it. I'd much rather do that than make a phone call.
0: Yeah, and I think that your observation exactly mirrors some data in the Mary Meeker presentation that essentially for a boomer, Phone is overwhelming the way you want to communicate with businesses and get customer service. Like 90% of all boomers say that that's their first choice. And then email is a distant second, and chat and uh, social are almost non-existent. And then you look at the same data for millennials, and it's exactly opposite, that chat and social are by far the preferred ways uh, followed pretty far behind by email and phone is almost non-existent for millennials. So definitely a, a generational shift we're seeing there.
1: Yeah, and then the third trend. So those two we we've, were a pretty well-treaded territory for us on the podcast, uh, and and most e-commerce people will be very familiar with those. This third one is interesting, and it's, it's kind of newer research that is tends to be coming out of what happened to change consumer behavior after the recession. So the recession was 2008, 2009. It was the great recession, kind of probably one of the worst economic, hopefully the worst economic kind of downturn we'll see in our, our lifetimes. Um, and what's interesting there is the research now is showing, and this is, um, there's research from both Deloitte and Forrester that consumers have effectively split into two very distinct groups. And there's value oriented consumers now and convenience oriented. Uh, and the way I help describe these things is, um, value oriented would love, they love convenience, but they're just not willing to pay for it. Whereas convenience oriented folks, they'll use the Fandango and pay the $8 fee and not really think twice about it. Or they'll use Amazon prime. Now they'll see the $10 tip and they'll be like, ah, it's totally worth my time. Um, these things tend to cut um, two different ways. So there's demographic data. So it looks a lot like the Amazon prime kind of demographics uh, tends to be the convenience oriented people, even though that does deliver value. So it's house family households over 80 K over indexes for um, convenience and then family households under 80 uh, K over indexes for value oriented. Uh, but then there's a generational thing. Millennials tend to favor convenience. Um, And, uh, and then as you get kind of older, then you tend to favor kind of value. So pretty interesting there, um, set of data. Um, I'll give you another anecdote from our car wash. So, so we had these tunnel car washes, which are fixed locations. We don't come to you or anything. And we always did, um, just the normal kind of $20 exterior washes. But on weekends we would offer detailing and that can go up as high as $150. Uh, and then in 2008, it just disappeared. And, uh, as we talked to customers that were regulars on why they weren't coming back anymore, they basically said, and I would put them in the convenience oriented bucket. It wasn't price. They said, I just don't have three hours anymore to sit there while you wash my car or get a friend. I can't ask a friend to give me a ride. So something about the recession made people either hunker down and become value oriented, kind of, you know, like I'm going to penny pinch. Or they became really aware of what they were spending their time on and they really tried to optimize it to either generate more income or if they were going to have some free time, they wanted to optimize that too. And um, so, so it's a really interesting change in consumer behavior that I think we're just really starting to understand.
0: Yeah. And it, it is interesting because it's really talking about opportunity cost versus hard cost in, in some ways with that, the convenience equation and the age old consumer behavior that's always fun to follow is the gas price. And you see, like, value oriented shoppers are willing to drive ridiculous distances to get a slightly lower price on gas at the expense of convenience. And ironically, very often, when you fully weight the price they paid for the gas with the, the cost and time of driving that far, they actually got uh, less of a value. Yeah,
1: my my, another favorite example of this, this this was in a headline in the New York Times. Um, Millennials have abandoned cereal because it's too time consuming to eat. Uh, And uh, it's actually pretty serious. And I don't I don't know if you guys work with these companies, but the, the General Mills and the Kelloggs of the world, cereal sales are down, you know, mid double digits. So 30 to 50% year over year um, for the last couple of years, because millennials really find it inconvenient. And um, we were in our office joking about this uh, with, with some other mid 40 year olds and, you know, asked a couple of millennials and they're like, yeah, I mean, think about it. I have to go out and buy milk and make sure it's not expired. And then I'm going to go get the cereal and make sure it's not stale. And then I'm going to like put it all together and then clean the dishes. So what millennials would prefer is they, they kind of go and they're like, you know, that's a 45 minute kind of investment all in. If I just grabbed a bar or a yogurt or something that's more ready to eat, um, then that's what they're going to do. And so cereals are scrambling to try to figure out what to do here. And you know, a lot of them are coming out with bars. A lot of them are coming out. I've seen these like containers where you just kind of like shake it and it mixes the milk <laughs> in the cereal. And But then I think people have been choking on those because you're like drinking kind of, Pretty hard cereal as as it hasn't mixed with the milk very much. So it's it's an interesting example of of this taken to the this convenience orientation taken to the extreme is hurting a whole category of food that has become kind of too time consuming. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Some people say it's a sad reflection of society, but you know, it is it is what it is. We can just react to it as as merchants.
0: That that uh, is all we could do. I, I've heard the boomers complain that the millennials value prioritize convenience over value largely because they're still spending the boomers' money.
1: It could be part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, And then the fourth trend, it's kind of uh, a little bit of culmination of these is, you know, everyone now is uh, consumers expect a zero friction kind of an experience. And, And this comes from the the customer experience focus that everyone's had over the last three or four years. Uh, Amazon, I think has driven a lot of this um, behavior out there uh, that has trained consumers that, you know, two days, pretty good shipping. One day is fast and two hours is, is amazing. So, you know, five years ago, it, five days was amazing. And so, so this is really this bar. It continues to get raised and consumers just think of the ease of use compare um, just to take it out of, Uh, e-commerce for a minute compare the taxi experience to the uber experience that's a zero friction you know i i press the button i can see where they are i don't have to call them they don't have to call me um there's there's almost no friction in that experience so that's what consumer expectation is today so um uh so at the intersection of those four things mobile social bifurcation, kind of an orientation towards convenience, and then the expectation of zero friction. That's kind of where I think the on-demand economy lives and why it's really surging right now.
0: Got it. That makes perfect sense. Those are, each individually are super important trends to be thinking about when you're thinking about changes and disruptions in your own business, but you you think about the intersection of all four of them and it's understandable that that some traditional business models are getting disrupted. Yeah, what do you think about the zero friction? Well, there're certainly voluminous examples of where you can eliminate friction and see conversion go up obviously in the in the uh, digital commerce space. And the Uber example in particular to me is a great example of this macro trend we're seeing in in the evolution of user experiences. We call it going from explicit user interfaces to implicit so in that cab you had to explicitly pay for your ride right you had to get the money out of your wallet or or give them a credit card if you were in one of the rare cabs that would accept your credit card and you had to do this explicit transaction and part of the the brilliance of the low friction Uber experience is that payment became implicit just by getting out of the car Uber had enough information about you. They knew uh, how far you'd traveled and what rate you had agreed to, and they had your payment information on file. So they had everything they needed to take something that used to be explicit and make it implicit. And you, you can look at a, a huge number of user experiences and say, man, that has always been explicit, but we now have enough data uh, about that user and that experience to make it implicit. And that's the, the same sort of thing when Uber predicts what your destination is going to be and, and auto suggests it as a destination because it's seen where you travel more often and the instant uh, suggestions in Google and the auto complete in your, your browser bar in your web browser. All of these sort of examples, as we get to know the user better and we're able to make things more implicit, we dramatically reduce friction, which greatly increases adoption.
1: Yeah, that, that's a great example. One of the things we find with the car wash business is people just don't have cash and they love the fact they can just pay through the app. They can tip. They don't like the they don't like the, you know, the I don't know if it's friction, but the experience of tipping. It's just like it's very stressful to a lot of people. They don't know how much to tip. They even though you know maybe the the person you're tipping as is not really you know they don't have their hand out or anything. It creates a lot of you know stress for people to figure out what do I tip and not. And a lot of them, a lot of people like the fact that app suggests a tip and um com- you know commonly what we see is they'll just accept the suggested tip. So uh, that those are little examples of friction that individually and and for many listeners it may not seem like a big deal. Oh, I'll make a phone call. I don't care about cash, but. You know, when you have a generation that is really favoring this zero of friction, all that stuff adds up to a lot of friction. For sure. So so those are the that's kind of the setup of those consumer behaviors have created this perfect storm that's causing an explosion in the on demand economy. Um, so let let's kind of peel the onion on that. And the, the way I like to start thinking about it is if you think about the GDP and the you know, like Super high level. Uh, The U.S. GDP is twenty percent goods and eighty percent services. So the way I think about the on-demand economy at a a high level is the same—you know—kind of sweeping change we've seen go through the retail world, which is largely the goods space. I think is going to happen to the service space. Um, And you know, think of every service that you get. Uh, and restaurants kind of fall into services too, um, food services. And, you know, uh, every one of those is going to have an on-demand experience, and just like e-commerce, where it went through certain categories faster than others, the same thing's going to happen here. And it's interesting to think: all right, if, if you if you believe in that, how big is this addressable market for the on-demand economy? Well, if, if you kind of think in the U.S., um, you know, right now e-commerce is at about 250 million. Um, so a lot of a lot of people kind of take that and forex it and kind of say, well, services are four there's four times more services in GDP than products, so therefore, uh, you know, it should be kind of a four times the e-commerce kind of addressable market that would that would put it at a trillion um, so that's one i've seen you know some estimates kind of say two to four trillion um, globally and stuff like that um, the there's not a lot of stats out there on how big it is today uh there was a recent h um you know, uh hbr article uh harvard business review that put it at around 60 billion a year today already in the on-demand economy so this is something that has kind of grown up pretty quickly to be and much faster that's over 3 years e-commerce has been around for kind of 15 to 20 depending on when you kind of you know press the start button um and it's already, if it is sixty a year, it's largely kind of centered in the U.S. So, you know, that that's almost a quarter the size of e-commerce, which is pretty amazing, and, and it just kind of speaks to this thing that you know the pace of technology adoption is accelerating, and these platforms that are out there. Allows the on-demand economy to grow very, very quickly. Uh, I know at our, Spiffy our biggest challenge is keeping up with the demand. You know, people people's expectation is they press a button and things happen, and we run around like crazy hamsters on the back end making it happen. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it is definitely we definitely can feel the consumers really like this way of doing it. Uh, another way to look at the space is how much investment is going into it, and, and the investment pace has been tremendous. Um, if you look at kind of 2010, there was, uh, 12 deals at 55 million. And then as you get to like 2013, 50 deals at over 400 million, 2014 was a big year at 1.8 billion 77 companies. 2015 had a little bit of a downturn. Um, it was more like 50 companies and a uh, billion dollars. Uh, and then 2016 has kind of picked back up. So, um, and there's, there's literally, you know, there used to be kind of five to ten investors that focused on this, and now pretty much every large venture capital firm worth their salt has uh, a fair number of on-demand economy kind of companies in their portfolio. Uh, and, and what's interesting is... I can make an argument that this is probably starving off investment into some interesting e-commerce concepts. I you know, I can't think of any specific examples, but you, know, you do start to hear um, uh, there's a recent article about Birchbox and uh, you know, when we we're at Shop Talk, there's talk about how, you know, a lot of VCs are a little more cautious about e-commerce because you haven't had outside of Amazon and, and maybe Zappos, you haven't had that venture backed kind of really big success in e-commerce. So, uh, so, you know, it feels like the venture dollars have kind of sloshed away from e-commerce kind of digital products and more into digital services. Any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I guess. It's interesting because you talked earlier that there's not even a clear definition for ODE or at least a universally accepted one. And then we don't really know what the TAM is. And so when you hear about all these big investments, those are uh, are super speculative versus e At least the market is pretty well defined at this point. We, we have a pretty clear idea of what the, the total addressable market is. So it's interesting that although it's a much less mature market, that it's it's getting a disproportionate amount of the investment. And I guess I'd also be curious, I have heard that it just feels like capital is tightening up a little bit and that a lot of funds have uh, their money out there right now and they're you know sort of sitting and, and uh, seeing how it performs. Do you think that's having a an impact on, on e-com or do you literally think it's that some of these other business models feel more lucrative like ODE? Yeah. I, I think, uh,
1: e-commerce being more mature actually hurts us because if you look at that 15 year arc, VCs are like, where's the huge winner. And, um, you, you know, it's really hard to point to them. You have Zulily and you have Zappos and you have Amazon and really there hasn't been another huge winner. Um, so, you know, I, I think, and there's been a lot of losers. There's been like fab has, you know, had a ton of investment and burned through it. Um, a lot of these folks have raised a fair amount, um, that and and I think people are kind of taking a wait and see approach. Um, one thing we've always struggled with the channel advisor um, with the industry being so well defined is we have this magazine internet retailer that kind of says here's the top 500 retailers, and that feels like the addressable market. You know, so so we've had I can't tell you how many VC meetings I've had where they're like, wait, your addressable market's 500 companies, and we're like, well, we have 3,000 customers already. <laughs> so you know, so so that. That unfortunately, that that's a great list, but it really undersizes the market, and and it misses. It's self-reported. It misses a ton of folks. It's off by a factor of probably twenty, I, I would think. Um, and so, you know, that actually kind of hurts us. Whereas there's nothing like that, and there's nothing out there saying like, here's the top five on-demand economy companies, and that's it kind of a thing. So, so I think it's a lot more wide open and, you know, um, Uber is not public, so we don't know how big they are, but if you look at some of the leaks and things, they're, they're a massive company. They're kind of going to be the Amazon of, of, of the space and just in the transportation vertical. So, and, you know, they're going to be a, you know, a 48 billion revenue company that's highly profitable in cities that are mature kind of a thing. So, um, so, you know, that's what's kind of sucking up a lot of venture capital into the space. Is kind of everyone saying, "Holy cow! Look at this size of this business!" and what's going to be the next Uber? Um, so that, that's that's what's pulling a lot of money into the space.
0: Got it. Interesting. That is a great segue to maybe talk about some examples of the kind of companies that are in this space. And obviously, you you mentioned Uber. You know, one thing that I'm always curious about. Uber unquestionably is huge and has been super disruptive. A lot of people talk about them as being the Amazon of transportation or the you know the disruptor. And I'm always curious: Is Uber going to be the biggest transportation company out there twenty years from now? Like Amazon, very likely will be the largest retailer in the U.S. twenty years from now. I ask that question because while Uber clearly solved a problem today. You look at the driverless cars and you you could imagine the Mercedes or Toyotas or whomever or Googles providing transportation and not needing an Uber interface in front of it. And when the cars drive themselves, is Uber solving a tertiary problem or is Uber solving an endemic problem that's going to give it an opportunity to grow for the foreseeable future?
1: Yeah, the, the jury's out on driverless cars. You know, they're they're you know, depending on who you talk to, they're five to ten years away. Um, you know, I think my nine-year-old daughter will learn how to drive. I don't know about your son. He he probably is the generation where they won't learn how to drive. Um, but you know, that it's going to take you know ten to twenty years, I think, for that to really change. So so Uber has a lot of hay they can make, and and their bet is that they'll self innovate. And they they you know I know you've seen, but just for listeners, they they went out and essentially hired the entire group at Carnegie Mellon that focused on self-driving cars. And they have a, you know, they clearly have an effort underway themselves. Uh, They haven't announced anything, but it's pretty well known. So, so I think their, their argument is, um, and what's interesting is so there's more Uber drivers than taxis in New York city by, by a huge factor. They crossed that line earlier this year. So it's probably a, 50% Fifty percent more, I would imagine now. Um, and talking to an Uber person, uh, a Uber traverses every road in Manhattan every hour. And one of the things you need for driverless cars is really, really good road data. So you can imagine the Uber fleet almost gives Uber this interesting machine learning advantage over other transportation companies. Um, that you know that, that they're just not going to get as much data as you know. Uber has all these drivers with phones; they can they have all that data. Um, and that that's an interesting set of data that they could use as the underlying data set for driverless cars. So so I, I think you know I think they'll be the largest transportation company. Uh, and then if we do go driverless car, I think Uber has a shot at being one of the players there. Oddly enough, um, even though they're gonna you know they're gonna be up against some pretty big R and D dollars from Apple and and uh, you know Google and Tesla and all these other and the, the big automakers as well.
0: Yeah, that that's going to be an interesting one to follow. I think you and I might slightly disagree. I'm certain they're going to make a fortune over the next 20 years, but I do think 20 years from now, when it's very likely that driverless cars will be the norm, that they're fundamentally a matchmaker that's matching up people that want to ride with people that are willing to give them a ride, and that service is just not going to be as useful. And so I do think 20 years from now they may be poised to be disrupted by a provider of those driverless cars. But but uh, hopefully we'll both be around and still podcasting in 20 years to call a winner on that one. Yeah, we'll circle back on episode 999. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's going to break our numbering convention if we get there, just so you know.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, we'll, have to, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Yeah.
0: What are some other good examples of ODEs?
1: Well, there's kind of some some different buckets. Uh, So transportation is obviously really popular. Um, You have Uber and Lyft, and then you have um, one that's been in the news lately to point out is DD. And I always forget the second part of it. It's in China. Uh, and they're way ahead of Uber in China, and uh Alibaba invested in them, and then recently Apple made a big investment in them, which was a bit of a slap in the face to uber um so so that caused Uber to go raise you know something like two billion dollars from Saudi Arabia and then stick on another two billion dollars in debt so these guys are really kind of the battle for transportation is, is probably it's kind of like the consumer electronics of e-commerce. It's the, it's the industry that's kind of furthest out on its adoption curve. And then the second one that comes up a lot is kind of dining uh, and, and food. Um, so you have a lot going on there. Um, and we'll talk about that. Then another one that's pretty far along is delivery and logistics. And in there you have uh, you have the Postmates, the Delive, the Instacarts, and then um, kind of, Tangential to that, you have things like Ship and One One is a popular one. Uh, and then the ones that are earlier in their adoption are home services. So think about you know every service I think is going to go this way. The uh, there's a fair number of them on cleaning. Uh, so home cleaning, there's Handy and Homejoy was one that, that uh, I want to highlight in a second. Um, there's auto services and that's kind of where we play. So there's Your Mechanic. Um, there's some oil change ones. Gas is popular uh, and car washing. Um, uh, and then there's ones that, you know, may not be first of mind, but are very popular and especially in metros right now, health and beauty where, uh, there's glam squad. And I think they're the New York one And style B is out of San Francisco. And these are ones where you could come and this is a service I'm sure you would enjoy. You could have your hair blown out um so you could have your hairstyle let's say you're going to a dance with your wife and you want to you know look super amazing these folks will come in and fix up your hairdo for you um and then there's uh then you know i think i think Segment that isn't typically talked about is if I think about all the services that I consume, uh, you know, as you think about these home services, I think every plumber is going to have to do this down the road. Uh, Exterminators, HVAC repair, all those things. If you if you could have that Uber-like experience, think of how much better it would be. Like I hate calling the plumber because you call into the, you have to call in. You get to the dispatch center. They don't know what's going on. They'll have to call you back. And they call back. And they're like, all right, Larry, you can be here Tuesday between 9 and 1. And then Larry comes. He taps on your door and runs away as quickly as he can because he doesn't want to kind of, you didn't know he's there. And so that, that whole experience is broken. And I think that we're, we're going to see this kind of surge of companies that try to reinvent this stuff in, in a more on demand kind of using that Uber zero friction bar. And it's going to, it's going to be an awesome and amazing. Uh, another one of my favorites um, that is not here, but I wish it was is, is on demand dry cleaning and, and clothes washing. Um, and that that's very popular in the Bay area. It's called Washio. There's pet services, so that's just a sampling. We don't have time to go into all those, but you know, every industry that has a service is, is going to have an on-demand kind of an offering. And, and um, if it's anything like what we see in the car wash industry, it, it, I think it's going to be pretty disruptive to the traditional players. And then we'll talk about it later. It's going to spill over into retail and e-commerce.
0: Scott, I totally disagree with you. I feel like all of those service providers like the locksmiths and the plumbers have completely adapted to digital because the majority of them are already on Groupon.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would argue Groupon's a step in the wrong direction, but we'll, we'll save that for another show. Fair enough. <laughs> um, so there's, there's some interesting data. So that, that's kind of the, some sample companies. Um, it's also interesting to think uh, this the space is pretty young It kind of call it three years, but there's already different business models kind of developing. Um, the most popular was a marketplace model and that's kind of where Uber and Airbnb are, where you take the supply side, which in the Uber model would be drivers demand side is consumers and the on demand economy company kind of makes that marketplace just like eBay and Amazon did in the, in the product world, they're kind of bringing supply and demand together. Um, That works great for some of these categories, but it's interesting because as the industry, the first wave of investment kind of felt like, let's apply that model to everything. And then we started to see some companies fail where that model isn't working. Um, A good example of that is the home cleaning business where you have a company called HomeJoy. And uh, I'll leave it to folks. There's a lot of articles out there about this. It's really fascinating to read it. But the short story is um, with home cleaning, so they would go out there and they tried to build a marketplace. But what happened is, if you had a great experience as a consumer, um, Homejoy couldn't guarantee you would get the same cleaner. So what you would do is you would go to the cleaner and say, hey, is there some way that I can make sure I get you? And the cleaner was incented because these marketplaces have a pretty high take rate. In, in these service businesses, they tend to be 30%, kind of 20 to 30%, um, whereas in e-commerce, we're kind of 8 to 15%. Um, the cleaners would say, absolutely, and in fact, I'll give you 20% off. So the cleaner was 10% better you're saving 20% and you're having a better experience because you went direct so the marketplace didn't add enough benefit outside of the referral kind of piece of it to to lock you in on the on the happy side on the unhappy side if you had a bad experience you as a consumer like Hey, Homejoy, that was a terrible experience. I want my money back. Well, Homejoy has already paid instantaneously. You know, the kind of implicit thing you talked about. Uh, They already paid the cleaner, so now they can't claw back that money. So what they do is they they're out of pocket an extra thirty percent, and then they take the, the the bad cleaner out of the marketplace. And then you, as a consumer, are probably going to churn. So what these things did is they were scaling up so quickly they didn't notice it. But in cities where they got older, they started to churn on the supply side and the demand side. So the marketplace model works, but you have to be really careful where you apply it. Another model that's out there is referrals. So that's kind of more where you're going to kind of say, "Hey," and, and Angie's List is kind of the old school version of this, um, and and these are more modern kinds of things. But you're you're essentially saying here's a directory of, of service providers. Here's how they've been rated. Uh, we'll make an introduction, then we'll get out of the way, and you have an ongoing relationship with them. So that that's a second business model. Um, the Amazon Home Services does a little, does kind of both. So if you just go to Amazon Home Services and you look for something, um, then that's going to be a referral. But if you're in a shopping cart and Amazon says, "Hey, Jason, do you have an HDTV. Would you like to see some installers in Chicago?" Then that's going to be more of a marketplace. They're going to take a, a take rate on that. Um, Another popular example of a referral network is uh, kind of the new Angie's list is called Thumbtack and it's, it's pretty cool. I I recommend people try that one. Um, And then the last one that's really um, kind of where we are at Spiffy and, and, and where a lot of people are ending up is, you know, what if you actually kind of own and operate the supply side of it, and then you you still get the benefits of the the consumer experience being better? Um, so, for example, here in Raleigh Durham, we couldn't do a marketplace because there's literally five detailers, uh, and maybe three of them would be high enough quality for what we want, and we have no way to control that really. Um, Already here in Raleigh, for example, we have 15 detailers that we've we've kind of owned and operated built. So so we're already kind of like three X the size of the market. So we had to um, to make this work. What we're trying to do, we had to kind of go into own and operated camp. Uh, and this brings up another big debate in the on demand economy. Um, a lot of the companies get by. By, by having minimal cost of labor because they treat the, the providers as consultants. So they pay them through 1099. The downside of 1099 is you can't train those folks. Um, so we said in our business, we said, look, we're not going to have someone touching your car with an orbital waxer that hasn't been trained. So, so, so we W two everyone, we train them and all that kind of thing. And for a while, venture capitalists were really kind of sour on that, but you're seeing more and more of the on-demand economy companies say, look, to really own this consumer experience, we need employees and not, you know, faux contractors that we can't train. So so those are some of the interesting kind of business models and and hot topics in the on-demand economy right now.
0: Got it. And it it would seem to me that depending on the nature of the specific service that was being provided, it might self-select amongst those models, right? Like, so you think of some services where there could be a great diversity and quality, and so then the marketplace might not fit as well, or the 1099 might not as fit as well versus W-2 and other cases where it's, it's sort of binary. You get the service or you don't, and there's not a a range of qualities, and then you know the, the, the marketplace might work better, and that that might be closer to uh, an Uber, for example.
1: Yeah, a, a good example to bring up here is uh, when we were at Shop Talk, uh, you know, Ron Johnson has his new company called Enjoy, and that's one where you can't just go out there and say we're going to go create a marketplace. There's already all these awesome, you know, people that 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 help everyday consumers with their gadgets. So uh, we're just going to go aggregate that and and you know, kind of. Pick them and and match make. Um, No, you have, you know, that's a model where you say, if you really want to deliver that experience, you're going to have to WT those folks. You're going to have to train them. You're going to have to retrain them constantly because new technology is coming out. But by doing that, you're going to have a better customer experience. Whereas with, uh, you know, maybe just simple TV installation, maybe a marketplace model works there where, you know, you could, there's probably enough of, in most cities, there's probably enough of an existing infrastructure there that you could have a marketplace.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I suspect Ron would even make the argument that Amazon is aggregating TV installers and that, you know, there's probably a significant set of that market that isn't well served by the marketplace model because these guys are coming in your home and drilling holes in your wall. And in some cases, they're hanging very heavy things high up in the air. And I think he would make the same argument that Spiffy makes that. The only way to offer this service is with well trained w two employees that can sustain a particular service level
1: Yeah, so, so those that's kind of a a quick ride through, but those are some of the high level um, you know topics in the on demand economy that that i'm seeing uh, kind of lay the land and, and where things are so I want to use the rest of our time to talk about and since our listeners are are pretty squarely in the digital commerce space let's talk about what does this mean for retail uh, and, you know, and why they should care. Um, so, so, so where do these things intersect? They're obviously kind of, they share changing consumer behaviors are impacting goods and services. Um, the first intersection I think that everyone should think about is product delivery. So, you know, obviously we talk a lot on the show about Amazon and how they've raised the bar and same day delivery and all that. And a lot of retailers you and I talk to, you know, they they, they, they scoff at that and they say, well, consumers aren't really asking me for it today. Um, and you know, it's way too expensive. We'll never be able to do that. And the consumer, once they have to pay, they'll never want it and all this kind of thing. Um, it, it, there may be some truth to that. We'll, we'll kind of you know, it's one of those experiments. In five to ten years, we'll, we'll know how it plays out. But you know, personally on my side, once it's one of those things you get addicted to because once you're like, oh, I can get something in two hours, it, it becomes something you do more and more, even though you don't really quote unquote need it in two hours. So the good news is uh, for those retailers that follow the on-demand economy, this delivery bucket of companies, there, there's five or six companies there that you can actually partner with to help you. Um, ship, kind of, do deliver from store, if you will. Um, so a lot of a lot of retailers are experimenting with this, and the companies that, that come up the most are Instacart. Um, they tend to have focused on grocery. Postmates tends to have focused on food and um, uh, food and product delivery. Delive, which is focused mostly on product delivery. Uber Rush, which is a little bit all over the place, and that's Uber's kind of product delivery offering curbside, and then I would kind of put Google Express in this bucket, I guess. Um, so so that's interesting. And I, I know, do you talk uh, to clients a lot about this particular segment?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's pros and cons to those kinds of service providers. If you don't have the infrastructure to do delivery yourself, they're a great extension of your service to be able to get those products uh, to home. So you, you think about a Fresh Direct in New York that's a the actual grocery store that that have the groceries themselves, and then they have their own delivery network to deliver those grocers to New Yorkers' homes. And if you're Whole Foods in New York, uh, you don't have that infrastructure. And so Instacart enables Whole Foods to directly compete with Fresh Direct for home delivery. And so that can be really interesting. Arguably, it's probably harder for Whole Foods to be cost competitive with Fresh Direct given that they own the infrastructure and Whole Foods is having to rent it. But the one that comes up the most when I talk to commerce companies and the the one that I always express some skepticism of is the Uber Rush. And the reason I say that, it perfectly reasonable service, perfectly reasonable to have Uber Rush be sort of in your portfolio of delivery options. But last month at Walmart's shareholder meeting, they made a big announcement that we're going to start testing home delivery with Uber. And that generated a huge buzz, and all the media thought that that was a great, novel thing for Walmart to be doing. But the marketplace model for delivery seems like it can't work as your primary delivery vehicle, right? So when I place an order for groceries with Walmart— and i need those groceries in to my house in 1 hour and there's perishables in those groceries they have to come here while i'm still home so there's a very narrow delivery window and walmart is going to put out an an order on the uber rush network and no uber driver may take that order right mm-hmm. like there's uber doesn't have any control over those drivers they can't demand that a driver go to walmart and pick up my order The only thing Uber can do to incentivize a driver to go pick up my order for Walmart is to offer to pay the driver more, right? Which is the- Surge pricing. Yeah, dreaded surge pricing. (laughs) And so the days I most want those home deliveries, the ingredients for my bean dip on Super Bowl Sunday or the last minute Christmas gifts on Christmas, Uber is not going to be able to deliver, you know, is not going to flex to those high demand days. So to me, Uber could be a great, supplement to other delivery vehicles and sure enough when you look behind the scenes at the Walmart announcement they're using Deliver and Uber which to me mm-hmm. makes a lot more sense to have a portfolio of those than to exclusively rely on a marketplace provider.
1: Yeah, I wonder if you could almost have like a you know a, a fallback scenario where you kind of push it out to Uber if you don't get a hand raised in 5 minutes then you go over, you know, if the economics worked out It'd be interesting to kind of think through that. There's probably some algorithm in there or heuristic to to tie them together.
0: I think that's exactly what you have to do. And at the end of that supply chain, I do think if that's the real business you're in, you, you have to own some amount of that delivery yourself so that you can always force a hand to get raised.
1: Yeah. Okay. So so delivery is kind of a very horizontal thing that I think everyone should be keeping an eye on. And a vertical to just just kind of pick on is grocery where uh, this could be very disruptive for grocery stores because remember people want zero friction and if I want to make a meal tonight, going to the grocery store, picking out the things, going home, making a meal for example, um you know that that's a lot of effort, uh, and millennials won't even make cereal. So, you know what you're starting to see is one of the the second uh, ahead of trans, you know, right up there with transportation and delivery. One of the biggest categories is kind of food delivery. Now, sometimes these things are the ingredients, and you make the meal, like a Blue Apron, and there's several services like that, like Munchery, etc. And then uh, increasingly, you're seeing the the more popular services are really prepared food delivery, um, and usually from local restaurants. So there you have Doordash and OrderUp, which I think are, are kind of one company now, uh, and I think that was born out of Chicago. You have Postmates, really focuses on this. Uber also has an offering there called Uber Eats. Amazon through Prime Now has started doing restaurant delivery, um, and I'm sure there's you know every city has another five kind of a long tail of these food delivery companies. Um, so so that's another interesting space that I think grocery stores should keep a pretty close eye on because. You know, it it gets to be pretty convenient and, and. I like this as as you know someone that has kids. I don't go to the latest and greatest restaurants. What we do is we'll occasionally make once every two weeks we'll post mate you know the hot new restaurant and they bring it to me and and it's fresh it's hot it's usually within thirty minutes uh, it's pretty amazing so it's a great way to sample restaurants without having to go uh, out to them as well so so I, I think that's an interesting category especially if you're in grocery and, and, and or restaurant kind of things to think about what what's going to happen there.
0: This is a perfect example of the bifurcation you talked about earlier coming into play. I think the convenience customer is definitely going to favor home delivery of those prepared meals, and I think that's going to be an increasingly large space. I'm a little skeptical on the value side, which tend to be the people that want to make meals at home, that they're going to want home delivery of ingredients. I feel like home delivery of uh, groceries and ingredients is always going to be a niche. There for sure are a segment of people that want it, and blue apron customers may be a perfect example. There may be some gourmets that like the convenience of delivery, but I think the high volume for application for grocery is going to be the online ordering and the pickup in store because delivery of perishables is a way harder problem than delivery of packages, both because you got to keep them refrigerated on the delivery in many cases. But the bigger problem is someone has to be at home to receive that package the second it arrives and put it in the freezer or put it in the refrigerator. And I, I think that's going to be self-limiting on the ingredient side. So I think we're seeing a ton of investment in Walmart and Kroger and a bunch of the traditional grocery around buy online, pick up in store experiences for grocery. And I think their their home delivery models are going to get some traction, but they're always going to be a much smaller niche.
1: Yeah, our local actually gives you a choice. You can kind of do, you can buy online and then you go to this express lane to pick it up, or you can have it Instacarted. And there's like two tiers of convenience fee you, pay, which is pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, and I, I would mention one other sort of interesting piece of news from last week is the Instacart announced that they were going to start piloting offering a pure pickup in store service. So that is for that regional grocer that doesn't have the ability to send people around their own store picking orders for customers, but want to offer buy online pickup in store and they don't think their customers are going to be willing to pay for the delivery fee. Instacart is now offering a pickup in store service. And then, you know, there's another company we may have already mentioned earlier, Curbside, that very similarly offers pickup in store service or pickup right in front of store service for retailers that don't have the capability to offer that organically.
1: And then the third category of company, I think that should really be paying close attention to this is if you have products that, that benefit from a service. Um, so, you know, in, in e-commerce we have certain categories like consumer electronics or, or you know, apparel, a pair of shoes. You, you don't need a service with that. But you know if you look at all the goods out there a fair number do need a service so um, in like TV installation um, if you certain furniture needs to be installed um, as you start to get into um, auto category for example, you get a lot of these kinds of things that could benefit from installation. Um, a couple of really interesting on-demand economy companies that, that I think kind of are good examples to watch out for here. Um, one of my favorite ones, they, they chose to launch here locally in Raleigh-Durham, so I know a lot about it, is called Michelin on Onsite. Um, so this is Michelin, the tire manufacturer. They don't sell direct at all, so this kind of ties into another meta Jason and Scott theme, which is kind of brands going direct and taking control. And here you have a brand that's watching all this and saying, you know, what if what if we could deliver to consumers? We could go to them and say... Jason, we can sell you, you know, tell us about your car. We'll bring the tires and install them right in your driveway or while you're at work. Um, so that's a pretty amazing experience. And these vans they've done, the technology in these vans is pretty amazing. Um, but you know, there you have a very large kind of corporation that kind of has realized, hey, we, we sell a product tires and it requires a service installation. If, if we can be the guys that, that kind of leap ahead of this trend and provide it, it it solves a number of interesting kind of challenges. Number one, it's the right thing for the consumer. Number two, we get the benefit of having that direct consumer uh, relationship.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that makes perfect sense. And obviously the traditional providers of those products are at great risk of being disrupted if they aren't thinking about those sorts of things. Yeah. It's, you know,
1: compare that to going to the Sears, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, People a little bit older than us go to Sears and have their tires changed, and you know, uh, you know, why would you do that if it can just kind of come to you?
0: Oh, and and sorry for for our younger listeners on the podcast, Sears is a, a former retailer that used to be the largest company in America.
1: They had a big building in Chicago named after him too. Yeah, and then um, uh, can you think of any other companies that are kind of in this this vein?
0: Earlier, we mentioned Enjoy, which is a. Uh, certainly an example uh, for consumer electronics. And I know Enjoy has has a business partnership with several of the telco companies. So you can now buy a a new Samsung Galaxy S7 Active and have that delivered to your home and have someone provision it and set it up and teach your mother how to get her email on it. And you think about... Being able to get that kind of service, and suddenly the four thousand AT and T stores or two thousand Sprint stores that those company own, you know, might not be as valuable if the majority of consumers decide that they want to bundle that that handset with a service and have it delivered to the home.
1: Yeah, it kind of takes the. Let's see, Best Buy has Geek Squad, and then Apple has Geniuses. So it kind of takes the genius and geeks and brings them to you with the product, which is which is, you know, you could definitely see. That being pretty helpful, and you, know, I would love for someone to come set up the Wi-Fi router. That thing always gives me fits. Yep. So,
0: Yep. <laughs> and that is that actually is a big part of Geek Squad services. So, Geek Squad does do delivery, and that's the mm-hmm. the majority of their revenue is in home versus in store.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, cool.
0: So, so let's kind of um, to bring it together.
1: Uh, so, here's four takeaways for retailers. So. Number one, um, you know, you may have started this podcast thinking, "What's this have to do about e-commerce?" Um, well, we think it's important that you watch this trend really closely because these kind of the Venn diagrams overlap uh, a fair amount at kind of with some of the areas we've talked about, but they increasingly could overlap more. Um, so that that's kind of takeaway number one. Um, you want to take number two.
0: You definitely need to be testing these things. And so if you're an e-commerce company and you're you're not offering a very fast delivery or home delivery, you know, that it's a great opportunity to leverage one of these or, or more of these services to start doing a test and understand what services your customers are likely to adopt. You can gain a lot of data about what services your customers are going to give preference to and where you ought to be investing and where you might be vulnerable to disruption.
1: And then the third takeaway is if you have a product that naturally requires a service, you should think about self disrupting and how could you through an on demand economy kind of a system provide that service along with your product. Think about Michelin and what they're doing. Um, We talked about enjoy, um, and even at kind of looking historically, the companies that when a major change is around the horizon, the companies that 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 just kind of dig their feet in, put their head in the sand, tend to be the ones that go out of business first. So, you know, Borders, um, Linens and Things, the Radio Shacks, of the world. Um, these are companies that really didn't see this stuff coming. They didn't self-disrupt you know, who wants an ebook? Why would anyone ever use that um, kind of a stuff? Or if you find yourself saying, uh, who would ever want stuff in two hours and who would ever want a service to come along with the product? Um, you know, that that's, that's, uh, you know, you don't want to be on that side of things when, when this adoption rate gets into its second set of third years, at the pace it's going, uh, that, that could be an existential crisis for you.
0: Absolutely, and Scott, thank you very much for not including my former employee, Blockbuster, uh, in that in that list where they they generally slot slot right in. <laughs> Who would want DVDs in the mail? Exactly. Who'd want to not pay late fees? Yeah, that that could be a deep dive for for another another podcast where I defend uh, Blockbuster's demise. <laughs> uh, but Scott, you mentioned there four takeaways. What's the fourth?
1: And, and the fourth one is even if you're sitting there and you're you're not in one of these categories and you're like okay good I'm not in grocery. Uh, I'm in an apparel, uh, and if this isn't going to really hit my industry. It, that's true directly, but what's going to happen is consumers are getting trained, and these consumer changes feed back on each other. So what's going to happen is as consumers get more and more used to pressing a button and things happen in the real world, uh, they're going to expect that from you. And you know it's going to put increasing pressure over on the e-commerce side when services can, if I can get a plumber to come to my house in an hour and watch him on a map, then five-day shipping is going to feel you know, that much more dinosaurish. So So this, this on-demand economy is going to feed back into all categories of retail. So it's important to you know, know that and, and stay in, on top of that consumer expectation uh, around zero friction and super fast delivery and all those kinds of things and an awesome mobile experience.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. The higher quality these services get, the more they're going to change customer expectations For all categories, so even if you're in a category that maybe isn't immediately going to be impacted by them, you know, maybe you're even a monopoly, you're Comcast or the the local cable company. Those four hour install windows seem even more ridiculous when you can get your dry cleaning in fifteen minutes.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was getting a Lowe's delivery and it's uh, the other day, and it's great that Lowe's delivered the stuff, but then it was kind of like you know man, I was like, man, I wish I had an app where I could kind of see where they are because I need to run an errand. And, you know, it's, it's, it really, really highlights the, you know, it creates this, this gulf that's enlarging, um, with, with, other services. And I think when people are going to have a choice, they're going to choose the services that, are, are, that feel more on demand.
0: Yep. I would make one last point. You mentioned clothes or apparel as, as a category that might not be an early candidate for ODE, but I actually think there are a voluminous number of providers that now show up in your home, take your measurements and fit you and help give you style advice for your specific wardrobe and it won't surprise me, pretty soon some of the, that apparel gets delivered with the tailor to finish your pants and take in your, your jackets and, and do all those kinds of things. So I think when you brainstorm for very long, the list of categories that has an ODE component or could have an ODE component is much larger than you might think at first glance. Good point, absolutely. Well, Scott, not shockingly, we have done it again. We've spent a perfectly good hour of our listeners' time. I hope you've enjoyed this deep dive. And as always, we'd love to hear your feedback about the show and read your iTunes reviews. Or you can have a dialogue with us on the official Jason and Scott Facebook page. So with that, I'll thank all our listeners for their time and wish everyone a happy commercing. Good night, everybody. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review.